for communion with God. Man is made, inherently designed, for fellowship with God. Some other traditions teach pretty strikingly different things. In the Catholic Church, they teach that man is born with an inherent tendency towards sin. Not itself sin, but a, but a bent towards sin. But that's not what Scripture teaches at all. It's not what Reformed theology teaches about the Bible. We say, no, in the beginning, God makes man righteous, holy, upright, oriented towards God and communion with God. So that was a few Lord's Days ago as we looked at the image of God and man. We are designed for communion with God because of that image. But the image of God in us, in itself, is not enough to, to get us to that communion with God. We've been designed for fellowship with God, Right, that's, that's what we've been made for. But we need something. We need a bridge to get us to that communion with God we were made to have. Right, It's like a train that's been designed to reach a certain destination. It has to have tracks also to get there. It needs an, an inherent design and it needs a means to achieve its end. Man was made for communion with God. And uh, uh, we need something put in place then to have that realized for us. What can be that for us? What, what, what could possibly, think about that, what could bridge the gap between the Creator and the creature? Yes, we've been made in His image, ready for fellowship with Him, but what can actually bring the Creator and the creature together? What can bring together the eternal God and the temporal time-bound Man, What can bring together the unchangeable God and the changing creature? How can we have Him as our blessedness and reward? A kindergarten class could sooner design a spaceship and get to the moon than we could get communion with God by ourselves. What do we need? Well, God designed us for Himself, but He had no intention of designing us for Himself and then just leaving it there so we'd be forever frustrated. He designed us for himself, and then he entered into a covenant with us. He came down without losing his, uh, his identity as creator, without, without adding anything to his identity as the unchangeable creator. He comes down to created man and enters into a covenant with him. A covenant. We're diving in here to... Uh, uh, to covenant theology, to uh, this idea of the covenant of works or the covenant of life. Here, uh, the, we're also going to see the covenant of grace in a few weeks' time. Covenant theology is vital. Uh, uh, we could say, I think, um, I don't think it would be an overstatement to say, Reformed theology is covenant theology. That this is kind of our big picture understanding of the whole of the Bible. God operating through covenants as he uh, uh, has fellowship and communion with his people. We're diving into this covenant theology. So the first question probably should be, well, what is a covenant? Uh, my boys are working on the shorter... It's not the shorter catechism. It's the children's catechism. It's the, 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 the shorter than the, shorter cate- the shortest catechism, maybe you could say. And uh, there's a question. What's a covenant? A covenant is a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by His Word. A covenant is a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. That's a nice answer. Kind of captures it pretty well. It's a relationship God establishes. 
He starts the relationship. We don't climb up to him. He comes down. He condescends down to us, gets down in our level. Calvin talks about how God is like a, uh, a nanny or a nurse in the nursery who gets down on the children's level and speaks baby talk that the baby can understand. That's what God does in the covenant. He comes down. He initiates this relationship. He comes down to meet with us. He doesn't need us. God has everything he needs in himself. He has, he has uh, all the fellowship and communion he could ever wish for in the Trinity. Uh, he is perfectly happy in himself for all eternity. But he wants a relationship with his creatures. It's, it's amazing. Uh, so God and God, a covenant is a relationship that God establishes. He comes down and he does this. And it's not a casual relationship. The language of that shortest catechism says it's a relationship that he guarantees by his word. This isn't just, you know, a relationship where you, you have an understanding. No, this is a marriage where there's a bond in place, a legal element to it. It's formal, it's official, and it's guaranteed by his word. Nothing can overpower his word. This is cemented by his word. He cannot change, his word cannot change, his covenant cannot change. So God has started this covenant with man. What I want to do together tonight, loved ones, is look at this covenant the covenant of life, as it's called here in the Shorter Catechism. The Confession of Faith calls it the covenant of works. Either name is, is good. Uh, they just highlight a certain aspect of it. Uh, the covenant of life here. This covenant God makes with Adam, which we read there in Genesis chapter 2. I want to consider it together and unpack together the Catechism's answer, which we confessed together earlier, uh, and, and at the same time look at Genesis 2, a few other texts there in Genesis and then uh, a little bit in Revelation chapter 2 as well to see how this is what the Scriptures truly do teach. So let's, uh, let's dive in together. Uh, I believe there's a copy of that catechism question in the bulletin. Is that right? Is there a copy there so you can refer to it there if you need to? Um, <clears throat> all right. So let's uh, start off here with the first section of the answer. When God had created man he entered into a covenant of life with him. The first thing I want to look at with you is why this is called a covenant of life. Why did the divine say it's a covenant of life? Well, life refers to the reward of the covenant here, or the goal of the covenant. If Adam, God is making this covenant here in Genesis chapter 2 with Adam, if Adam keeps this covenant, the reward is... Life, eternal life. Uh, in Genesis 2.17, we see what happens if they break the covenant, right? In the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. So we see there in Genesis 2, verse 17, the, the, the negative side. If you break the covenant, here's what happens. So what's the implication? If you keep this covenant, what's the reward? Life not death or disobedience. We see it come out even more explicitly in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. This is after the fall now. Man has sinned. He has broken the covenant. And uh, he's, he's eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God told him not to eat. And what happens then in Genesis chapter 3, 22 to 24? Man's cut off 
from the tree of life. He's broken the covenant, he's, he's given over to death, and he has cut off from the reward of the covenant, life. It is hard for us, I think, to overstate just how important this principle is. That God has embedded in the covenant he makes with Adam here in Genesis chapter 2, this idea of a reward of eternal life. That, that what was going on here in the Garden of Eden was not a permanent setup. This was a probation. This was a test. It, with a limited amount of time, we don't know how long it would have been, but God had given Adam a test here. Adam, here's your test, and if you pass this test, you are going to go on to eat of the tree of life and enjoy eternal communion and fellowship with me in glory that cannot be broken. The situation in Eden is wonderful, but it's not ideal because Adam and Eve have this possibility of failing the test. God is holding out to them, if they pass this test, a reward of something even better. And we see this not only in Genesis 2 in seed form, we see it in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, which we read earlier. Revelation 2, 7 says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The word paradise means garden. John there in Revelation, in the vision there, uh, hearing these words of Jesus to the churches, um, is, is seeing that this, there's a tree of life, the tree of life that's back in the Garden of Eden. It's in the paradise of God. It's there in the heavenly glory of God. The heavenly reward for the believer is what? To eat of the tree of life. Have fellowship, communion with God forever. It's not only in Revelation 2, it's actually in Revelation 22 as well. The tree of life shows up there. Uh, the, the Revelation 22 mentions it three times. The, the tree of life shows up in verse 2. It tells us that the tree of life is in the midst of the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and they may enter the city. And Revelation 22.19 says, The tree of life is the... It identifies the tree of life with the reward of having eternal life with God in the new heavens and new earth. What's all this about? Well, it means for us, loved ones, that the goal for Adam is also the goal for us that uh, Adam's goal that God was holding out for him is a heavenly reward of eternal life even before there's a fall into sin. And that, uh, that this is the same goal that is held out to us also in the Gospel. This has always been God's design. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what this is teaching us. To bring man to himself an eternal life. Uh, the, uh, the fancy way to say this is eschatology precedes soteriology. Eschatology, doctrine of the last things, um, uh, the doctrine of uh, our heavenly reward, precedes soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Uh, what, what we see here in Genesis chapter 2 is that glory is the goal from the beginning. Even before God has laid out His plan of salvation, He has this heavenly glory in mind for His people that he wants for them. All right, what, is, what does all this have to do with us? 
This happened a long time ago. This covenant God made with Adam was a long, long time ago. Uh, What does all this mean for us? What does it mean for us that glory is the goal, that God has always wanted uh, to bring man to himself in heavenly glory even before the fall? Well, it just means, loved ones, very simply, that God's desire for his creation, for, uh, for, uh, for those made in his image, for us, is, as it has always been, to bring us to himself, a fellowship with himself. And that should be what drives us and motivates us in our Christian life. That this is the goal God has always had for man. And now in Christ, he's brought it to pass. And this is what should motivate our lives. I um, hesitate to reference movies from the pulpit because I never want to sound like I'm uh, endorsing a certain movie. And I never know how many people have seen a certain movie or not, so the illustrations can be helpful or unhelpful. But for what it's worth, um, maybe you've seen Gladiator. Uh, maybe you haven't. It's, I think it came out about 20 years ago now. In it, there's this story of, uh, it's the story of this Roman general who is just kind of at the height of, of uh, his power and influence, and then he's betrayed and becomes a slave, and then uh, it's kind of his, his, his uh, attempt to get vengeance on the one who did this to him. But, but he's really driven in the movie by his desire to die and go to be where his wife and son are in the afterlife. And the movie's punctuated by, by these dreams, almost like visions, of, of the afterlife where this, this main character can go and be with his wife and his, I think it's his son again. And, and, and so what we see in the movie is that this character is motivated, he's driven by this vision of what lies ahead of him, the glory that is held out to him. Of course, it's a false hope. He's a pagan. But there's something there we can learn from, isn't there? That, that this is how we should live our lives, driven for what lies ahead of us. That God is holding out to us in Christ eternal life. The very eternal life he held out to Adam in the garden. And yet now Christ has, has accomplished that for us. And that's our goal also. This should drive us, motivate us, color our uh, priorities and our parenting and our marriages and our work and all that we do. All right, so that is the reward of the covenant of life. Eternal life with God in glory. Second thing that we see here is uh, the condition. So that's the reward God holds out to Adam and Eve in the covenant of life. He gives them a condition, though. It's a test, we said. They're on probation. Here's the test. He says, uh, the catechism says, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the test. Don't eat the fruit from that tree, the knowledge of good and evil. That's their test. That's the condition. It's, it's a condition of perfect obedience. Entire, exact, perfect obedience. Isn't it interesting, the command that God chooses here, the the test he gives Adam and Eve, it's such an arbitrary command. I mean, what's the big deal? It's just a piece of fruit, we might be tempted to say. What exactly is so wrong about Adam and Eve taking one fruit instead of another? But that's the point, loved ones. God is putting before them a test that will be sheerly about will they choose to submit themselves to me or will they try to exalt themselves as God? Will they accept that I know best or will they insist that they know best? Will they bow or will they stiffen their necks and and, and go their own way? Will they love me and obey me or 
reject me. That is the test that is here in this, uh, the forbidden fruit. God is asking them, will you submit all you are to me and to my will? Will you bow to me and trust me? That's what the command here uh, is about. This command represents God's requirement that Adam give himself entirely to what God has called him to do and offer perfect obedience to him. God has done everything so that Adam can fulfill this command. This should be easy for Adam. It was easy for him. God, God, God places him in the garden with all these other things to enjoy. It's not like Adam's hungry for that particular fruit. I mean, Adam has everything he needs. God's given him a helper, Eve, fit to help him. God has blessed him lavishly. He's given him the Sabbath day. He has communion with him. God's done all these things. And he's made him perfectly upright and obedient, just, righteous, holy. And yet, Adam falls. He takes the fruit for himself. He rejects God. And so he falls. Perfect obedience seems impossible to us, but it was not for Adam in the garden. It should have been the most natural thing for him. There's a mystery here, isn't there? How did he fall if he had all that? But of course, we don't know that answer. We just know he does. He falls. He takes the fruit. He rejects God. Makes himself equal with God. Tries to become his own God. Takes the forbidden fruit. So that's the second thing, the condition. Perfect obedience. That's what God requires of Adam that he might enter eternal life. Adam fails And that's where we see the third thing come to pass. The third part of the catechism answer, right? Uh, That uh, Adam uh, is going to face death now. That's the punishment that God puts into this uh, covenant. That uh, that, that, uh, Adam breaks it at the cost of his own life. Of course, he's separated from God. He's exiled from the garden. Romans 6 puts it so crystal clear. The wages of sin is death. That is the the covenant of life. If you break it, no eternal life. Instead, death. Well, what does this all have to do with us, loved ones? Uh, It seems, again, it seems, uh, can seem distant. It can seem like a, uh, a, a distant idea, this covenant of works. But it's still the covenant that underlies God's dealings with man. The covenant hasn't, you know, it's still there. God's requirements are still there. Etern- you know, he, he still holds out the reward of eternal life. He still requires perfect obedience. And the punishment for breaking that covenant is still death. And so what this means for us, first of all, is that all of us are covenant breakers. In the minute we are conceived in, uh, in Adam, we are covenant breakers. That is our fundamental identity. And so we're cut off from the get-go from God's reward of eternal life in His presence. If we want to have fellowship with God, we have to keep His law, and we can't do it. So all this, what all this does is it drives us to the covenant of grace, isn't it? We're going to unpack the covenant of grace more when we get to that question and answer. But it's the covenant of grace in which, in which God himself fulfills the covenant of works for his people so that he can invite them by his grace to come in. Right? What does Jesus do? He does. He comes as the second Adam, perfectly obeys the Father the way Adam should have. And then he 
merits eternal life by his obedience. As the second Adam, we see the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23 say to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That word again means garden. Jesus is saying to the thief, by my death, I, the second Adam, am opening the way to what Adam couldn't reach. Eternal life in the paradise of God. And that's our hope, isn't it? That, um, that, that, that Jesus has kept this covenant for us so that we don't have to. That we, by His grace, by God's grace, can be brought into fellowship and communion with God. That, that thing we were made for. Paul puts it like this in Romans 5, 18-19. Highlighting for us the obedience of Christ. He says, Therefore, as one trespass brought, uh, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus, by his perfect obedience, kept the covenant of works so that we, by the covenant of grace, can receive the reward of the covenant of works, eternal life in the presence of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for not leaving us in our sins and not leaving us as covenant breakers under your wrath and condemnation but bringing us in Christ into your presence and into communion and fellowship with you. We pray, Lord, that we would have our whole lives directed by the reward that you hold out to us of eternal life in Christ. We pray that would be our hope and that would be what drives us to renewed obedience day by day. Help us live with our eyes fixed on that great goal. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.